Well, this parable of the Good Samaritan starts really in its context with the, the question of the lawyer in uh, verse 25 here in Luke, Luke 10. Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that is really our question, I think, uh, so often. What, what have I got to do? I want to have eternal life. What do I have to do? And so Jesus elicits the answer from the man that you shall love the Lord your God with your, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbors yourself, in verse 27. And Jesus said, that's correct, it's do, and you shall live. And then he gives the parable of the uh, Good Samaritan, and then he, he concludes it by saying, 37, go and do likewise. So then, in one sense, he's saying, go and be as the, as the Samaritan, and by loving your neighbor, by loving your stricken brother, you are loving God with all your heart, all your soul, uh, mind and strength. That is what must go into your care for your saving care for the salvation of, of your brother. But as so often with his stories, with his parables, there's a, a, a sort of a repositioning of everything. Because quite clearly, the good Samaritan here is Jesus. You know, they mocked him that aren't you a Samaritan and you've got a devil. And he clearly was the, the despised saviour. <clears throat> and the way that he comes to the stricken man who can't be helped by, by the law, by the, the, the priest and the Levite, and he takes him to the inn uh, for two days, or he, he gives uh, two pence, a penny a day, implying he's coming back after two days, possibly uh, days or a thousand years, possibly uh, suggesting that he's going to come in his second coming. Uh, and we are there in the inn, as it were, possibly the inn is uh, the ecclesia, a hospital, as it were, for the sick, uh, rather than a club for, for the righteous. And so clearly enough, the Samaritan is to be seen as, as Jesus. And so the whole thing is turned around. You want to know what you must do to have eternal life. You are actually the stricken, helpless man. And as he says in John 6, this is the work of God, to believe on him who has been sent. And so let's just uh, follow that through for a moment. This would, parable would have been heard, of course, by a lot of uh, other people, and the, the ordinary people in, <clears throat> in Palestine were, you might say, anti-clerical. They were against the priests and the Levites, and the priests and the Levites despised the majority as an unspiritual kind of rabble who were apostate from, from the true God. Now, the priests and the Levites had living quarters in the Jordan Valley near Jericho, where they sort of retreated to from their work in the temple. So it would have been quite imaginable that priest and Levite would have been walking down that road. And so as the crowd of people heard Jesus tell the story, they would have started off enthusiastically nodding and grinning, half grinning. Yes, we can imagine this. There's poor guy. He gets beat up. And yes, it is a very dangerous road. All the time Jesus is leading them on, um, saying things that they can relate to. And they were yes, yes, yes. And then the priest and the Levite walked by on the other side of the road. And they would have all muttered, yeah, typical, typical. And he set the story up to, ex to lead them to expect some sort of Jewish messianic working class hero to sort of stride into the rescue. But instead, there is a Samaritan. Now the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And it was a shame even to talk to a Samaritan in a public place, as you see with the, Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman by the well. And the, the level of hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans can't be, I think, overemphasized. There's 
even a uh, a rabbinic uh, sort of tractate that says that any oil and wine that's been touched by a Samaritan must not be used. And another that says it's better to die than to have a Samaritan doctor ministering to you. And so once Jesus started to say that you know, the Saviour, verse 33, but a certain Samaritan came to him and had compassion, ah, you know, their brows sort of knotted. Suddenly the, the, the knowing nodding of heads and agreement with the storyline would have finished. Because it was now very difficult for them to continue being part of the story to identify with this story, suddenly it's all turned around. And I think this is to, to teach them and teach us how in fact difficult it is to accept <coughs> Jesus as our Saviour because we continually want to do something. Give me something to do so that I can get eternal life. But this is quite different here, absolutely different. And we want to do something, and I think the the way that this parable is so misinterpreted is reflective of that. In other words, people tend to interpret this parable on a simple level uh, as meaning that, well, you know, you um, <coughs> you just got to do good to people who are in need as you see them, and uh, yeah, that's the bottom line of the story. Help old ladies who fall over on the snow, and uh, help a guy who's uh, got a puncture on the road. And yeah, no one's saying don't do that, but I don't think that's the point of the parable. And the fact we love to interpret it that way shows, I think, that we're missing the point. That we are, in fact, the injured man. That's who we are. And <clears throat> I think that uh, how the story kind of concludes indicates just how tragically the whole thing was uh, mis misunderstood. Because he says, uh, verse 37 go and do likewise and literally the Greek means be going on your way and doing likewise and you've got the, the same phrase in the next verse in 38 as they went on their way this is the same as go the, the AV puts it in verse 37 <coughs> as they went on their way they came to Bethany now Bethany is located between Jerusalem and Jericho and the road goes via Bethany. So clearly enough, the inn he had in his mind was really the, the home at Bethany. And there was there a certain woman. Uh, verse 38, a certain woman named Martha received him. And that's the same phrase that you've got um, in verse 30. A certain man, a certain person, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and gets beat up. So Martha is, as it were, that woman. Now, it said that the Samaritan, verse 35, cared for him. Or, or he says to the uh, innkeeper, take care of him. And yet Martha rather unkindly says to Jesus, verse 42, don't you care? Same word, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? These similarities aren't just coincidence. The point is that Martha and Mary didn't get it at that time. I'm sure they did later. And so it, it is here, it, it, it seems to me, that they, um, <clears throat> they didn't get it, in the same way as we don't get it, that we are helpless, that we have been robbed, as it were, this is the, uh, the picture of, of the man stricken by sin, half dead, that's exactly uh, us in our situation, stripped of his raiment, wounded, uh, departed from, 
he's fallen amongst the thieves, etc. in verse 30. And incidentally, whilst we're in verse 30, all those phrases, fell among thieves, stripped of uh, raiment, <coughs> wounded, or literally whipped, uh, and departed from, and left, all those phrases are in fact taken out of passages like Isaiah 53 and the Septuagint that talk about Jesus. Now what's the meaning of that? I think it is that on the cross he identified with us that there he knows how the sinner feels. And this is the wonder of his death and the manner of it, that although he never sinned personally, when we sin, it's not that Jesus sort of turns off and thinks, yep, well, I don't know how that feels because I never sinned. The whole nature, uh, and it's a bit of a mystery, but the whole nature of the cross was such that he actually does know. He felt as a sinner. And in that sense, through the cross, there is now no separation between us and the Lord, even because of our sin. Now that doesn't mean that we can sin with impunity. It means that for the repentant sinner, he is right there with us and knows the feelings of the sinner because he went through them in the sense that he so identified with our sin on the cross. Now, there's of course uh, plenty of uh, plenty of other things that we can uh, we can learn from this parable. It's not simply that you know, go and do likewise, oh yeah, well, uh, we, we don't have to do anything, we just have got to accept that we are the uh, the injured man whose wounds have been bound up, and uh, incidentally that binding up of the wounds, that's quoting from Isaiah 61 verse 1, where Jesus is described as the one who, who bound up, who binds up the, the wounds of stricken humanity. Um, we also have, have got to reflect that work of the Saviour. Likewise, we too, who have been the tragically injured man, we have got to do the work of the Samaritan to others. But how do you get the motivation to, to do that? Because it was pretty difficult uh, for the Samaritan to do that. He put himself at risk. I mean, he was travelling alone, and people usually travelled in convoys, and we're told that he, verse 34, set him on his own beast and the Greek led him to an inn. In other words, he was walking with this wounded man on his donkey. So he was making himself vulnerable. And I think that's really what happened with Jesus. See, he didn't just sit in a monastery and sort of focus on being perfect. By getting involved with, with us, with humanity, he risked his own perfection. In other words, he put himself in the way of temptation by being chronically tired all the time, exhausted. You know, we tend to fall into sin when we're weak and exhausted, etc. And if we are to do the work of the Saviour, this involves a certain element of risk and certainly self-sacrifice on our side. Now, this leaving Jerusalem and going down to Jericho and getting beaten up, this is absolutely based upon Zedekiah. You remember King Zedekiah, Jeremiah kept coming to him and pleading with him to repent and to accept God's word and to not pose around. And to, if he had accepted that uh, they had sinned, the whole Babylonian invasion would not have happened. But he was an incredibly weak-willed person, Zedekiah, and he didn't. And so 
eventually the city is broken up and he sneaks out of a wall uh, in Jerusalem and tries to bomb to Jericho but he's caught on the way, he's captured, uh, has his eyes put out and he's beat up by the Babylonians. Now that weak-willed Zedekiah is not only each of us but it's also each of those that we in our trying to be the Samaritan are coming to help and it's it's good to, or it's easy let's say to, to help someone who's a real good guy who's fallen upon hard times not of, it, not of his own fault but it's far more difficult to go out into the lives and world of people who have not uh, done as they should and have dug a hole and fallen into it but you know that's what we've all done and that is the whole point of we the helpless ones saved by the work of the Lord Jesus and we are to help those people now there's also uh, a very definite Old Testament precedent to all this in 2 Chronicles 28.15 2 Chronicles 28.15 and it's when Israel who were themselves weak spiritually they attacked Judah whilst Judah were apostate and they took them captives but when they realized their own shortcomings and the fact that Judah really were their brethren then they clothed all that were naked among the captives they'd taken from Judah and put shoes on them and put clothes on them and gave them to eat and drink and anointed them with oil and carried all the feeble of them upon asses and brought them to Jericho to their brethren now without question Jesus is uh, basing his story on that as well so what Jesus is saying is that if you are going to be the Samaritan if you're going to be me in your ministry to others you've got to remember your own shortcomings in order to get motivated and to realize what the Lord has done for you by his grace and then go and reflect that to your brethren who are themselves spiritually weak so then we are called to be the Samaritan this is our response to the fact that we have been saved go and do likewise well in a sense this is the work of the doing of God is to believe on him who has been sent but we are the ones who have to reflect that you can't be passive to that you yourself have got to go out onto the road as it were and rescue your weakened and suffering brother or sister now how do we do that? by getting involved with people by relationships by yeah, but by correspondence with people by prayer for people by genuine care for people um, by trying to imagine how they are feeling dropping even a stranger to you uh, an email a letter a phone call even but say look you know I heard your problem I'm with you this is the nature of, of being the good Samaritan and seeking their salvation and it does involve putting up with the weakness of others now when for example this man, this lawyer starts the whole thing off in 25 by saying what shall I do to inherit eternal life Jesus could have lectured him that look here salvation is by grace not by your works but he, he's very gentle and he's far more gracious than that and so he runs with the lawyer's misunderstanding as far as it went um, and shows that you know, first of all, you are the stricken man and it's very difficult for you or anyone to accept me as the Samaritan saviour and only once you've accepted that will you find the motivation to go out and do likewise for your weak brethren to seek their salvation and, you know, it's so 
much easier to just uh, skim read all this and say, ah, oh, yes, so we should be uh, kind and good and generous to uh, any sort of uh, uh, case of need that happens to cross our path. But in fact, there is so much more to it that we really have got to be convicted of our own utter desperation and inability to save ourselves. You know, the stricken man was half dead, he could do nothing. And we are taken back to the inn. Now, it's been observed, and I rather like this observation, that most of the Lord's parables leave us with unanswered questions. Does the wounded traveller survive and get better? When does the Samaritan return? How much does it cost him? Was the beaten man happy to see the Samaritan when he returned? Or did he get better and say, Oh, you're a Samaritan, don't want to know you. And in fact, if you look at all the parables, they're the same. You know, does the elder brother finally join in the party? Does the unjust steward succeed in getting himself out of his problems after his dismissal? Who inherits the property of the rich fool? Etc. And so, those unanswered questions in the context of, of this parable, uh, you know, what is the, the feeling of the injured man when he sees a Samaritan again? How much does it really cost the Samaritan? Where does the Samaritan go? Um, does he really? Does the injured man really get better in in that uh, inn? These are the questions that we are left with, and the questions remain right here and now uh, as we uh, consider him and his death for us, and the fact that we have been saved, and that. You know, he has risked so much. He, travelling alone, put us on his donkey, and he walked next to the donkey, and led him, verse 34, to the inn. Now, the idea of somebody riding on a horse, on a donkey, and somebody else uh, walking next to them, this is implying that the person walking is a servant. You remember the whole uh, business with... Uh, with Mordecai and, and Haman and all that, but um, the, the one who, who walks next to the person on the on the donkey is inferior, is the servant. And so it was by being a servant to all that you know, this is what the Lord Jesus uh, lived out above all in his death, as Philippians 2 makes this plain, that his, his death there was... The, the death of a suffering servant and we are asked absolutely asked to do the same to be a servant you know, brother, sister let me serve you let me be the Christ to you